What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast show. And I am here live from South by Southwest Interactive in Austin, Texas. And I'm sitting down with a gentleman that I just uh, listened to his panel and uh, we're going to have some fun with this one. His name is Ahmad Nassar and he is the president of the NFL Players Inc. Among many other things. Welcome, Ahmad. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for doing this. And we did this a little bit on the fly. We were trying to schedule this ahead of time. So as I mentioned, the good news is we have a story arc that I follow. Um, and I tried to give you the prep for the tough questions at the end. So hopefully we'll be good with that. Um, I do want to start with uh, what's important to me because this is all about me, but you brought it up on stage as I was looking at your background. You happened to go to uh, University of Michigan and you were there, I think about the same time, uh, a fairly well-known quarterback in the NFL uh, was there. So um, one, you know, what was that like? I know you weren't besties with Tom Brady. This is who we're talking about and I'm a New England Patriots fan. But what was that like? And then you had a funny anecdote about your kids and the fact that, you know, they were telling people that you and Tom Brady went to school at uh, Michigan together. Yeah, so I was a couple years behind uh, Tom uh, uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, He did not know me. Um, I obviously knew of him. Um, he probably knows of you now though, right? He does know of me now. And, um, my kids are fond of telling their classmates, uh, my daughter's in fifth grade, my son's in third grade, um, that their dad went to school with Tom Brady, but I keep telling them that that doesn't mean what they think it means. Um, because they're sitting there in a class of 20 other kids. Um, I try to tell them that he didn't know who I was and there were 25,000 other kids there. But it is funny now that you have this role and you do actually know a lot of NFL players that ironically, if they say, Hey, my dad knows so-and-so that's yeah, no, it's funny. And, and going another university of Michigan example, um, I was actually in the same organic chemistry class as a freshman as Dahani Jones, who played linebacker in the NFL for 11 years. And we didn't know each other back then. Um, but Dahani and I now do a ton of work together on our one team collective venture startup focused initiative. And we always laugh about that because now we're friendly and and we talk all the time and we see each other all the time. And 20 years, literally 20 years ago, 21 years ago now, we were sitting in the same organic chemistry class at uh, the University of Michigan. So um, I wanna make this connection just cause I like to stitch these podcasts together and then we'll talk a little bit about what you do in your day-to-day role. And then we'll talk a little bit about the panel, um, the digital playbook that we just talked about. Um, Haroon Ula, mm-hmm. who is a mutual friend and I think introduced us to you. Also a Michigan grad. Also a Michigan <laughs> grad. So just a little shout out to Haroon who yes. was here uh, a couple of days ago. He had a little bit of a fire based on some changes in the White House that yep. uh, most folks will know about, I guess, by the time this is published. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, you gave a good explanation up on stage of the role of what you do as the president of the NFL Players Inc. versus the NFL Players Association, and you guys are connected at the hip. But I believe you're the for-profit version of, or the 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 group that basically does what you'll tell us you're going to do now. Yeah. So the NFL Players Association is the nonprofit labor union that represents all of the NFL players. Um, does all the union things um, that unions do, collectively bargains. Um, wages, hours, working conditions, really the focus, things like the salary cap, um, things that dominate um, media coverage um, like Tom Brady and allegedly deflated footballs. Um, And so we represent the players in that regard. But then much less well-known is the area of the business that I oversee, which is our commercial arm. And so the union 
um, wholly owns this for-profit subsidiary called NFL Players Inc. That's what I'm the president of. And we're really charged with generating revenue um, on behalf of all of the players and um, the uh, NFLPA itself. And so last year we generated about $175 million from licensing, marketing, content, uh, endorsements, and sponsorship. And that money went um, right back out to the players, form of a dividend basically, um, as being part owners of, of the company and, and to reward them for the value of their, um, their marketing oomph and power. Um, but also importantly, about $50 million goes to the NFLPA, and we that, that money funds the entirety of the operating budget for the union. So all of the um, bargaining work, but then also all of the programmatic things that we do, um, the educational things that we do, the health and safety things that we do. Um, and that way we have the luxury um, of not having to touch the player union dues. We put that in our rainy day fund. So one of the things that you and I talked a little bit about, and we will transition that into, <clears throat> excuse me, the panel discussion is, um, and, and I'll give a little preamble. So the digital playbook was, uh, it was yourself, Bryant Barr, who runs Slice and his partners with Steph Curry, uh, Deirdre Lester, who is the chief revenue officer at Barstool, and then Paul Rabel, who's a professional athlete, does his own podcast and actually is sort of pretty good across the spectrum. But one of the things you and I talked about in our prep was, there are people like Cam Newton or Tom Brady. They don't necessarily need a ton of help. But one of the things now with these social media um, opportunities and tools like Slice that Bryant has, now all of a sudden um, you can have this longer tail and you can start to get really niche. And you guys, I think, have been helping players facilitate that. And you mentioned something else during the panel, which is making sure the players get what they need to out of the NFL versus just the other way around. So it's more of a reciprocal relationship. So talk a little bit about that long tail and how their own social media presences allows them to go direct and brands can connect with them. You know, sometimes they go through media, but they don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. So, you know, the unifying theme for everything we do at the NFL PA and NFL players Inc is to help the players get more out of the fact that they play football than football gets out of them. And for way too long in our history, um, they've been more of kind of a cog in the machine and playing less than uh, an average of four years um, in their careers in, in the NFL. Um, and so that hasn't always really proven to be the case. And, and, and even guys like Tom Brady uh, and Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and Cam Newton and Russell Wilson, they don't need our help, meaning they, they will have um, opportunities regardless. But even there, I think we add incremental value to what they're doing, and they take advantage of that um, in a good way um, to be able to optimize their opportunities. But we certainly don't exist just for those guys um, because the, the market would be there for them regardless, um, even though we think we can accentuate it. And so, you know, I mentioned this on the panel that 15, 20 years ago, we only worked with 200 out of 2,000 players, uh, individual players. Um, and now this last year, we worked with over 1,300 players, uh, individual players, um, on everything from an appearance at a local car dealership all the way to a seven-figure national ad campaign um, with a player starring in commercials that you see um, every single time you watch an NFL game and beyond. And so um, that's really, you know, our prime focus is to um, help our players um, get uh, as many opportunities as they can and not limited to on the field opportunities. Uh, and so when we look at social media, um, that's just created all sorts of new opportunities because each of these players um, represents a, a geographic area, their hometown, their college town, 
Um, players represent 300 colleges and universities, um, even though there's only three, uh, 32 teams representing 30 geographic areas. So you really look at, you know, I, I, I love talking about the state of Alabama because the state of Alabama has no NFL team. Well, they do actually. I think it's called the Crimson Tide. Well, exactly. You don't they, you don't get paid by them. By There's them. always that annual discussion about whether the um, the Cleveland Browns or Alabama would win in a game. It, the answer is Cleveland Browns, without a doubt. Um, but you're right. I mean, they 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 don't have an NFL team, but they have two of the biggest, most successful college football programs of all time in Alabama and and Auburn, and they've placed so many players into the NFL. And so the, 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 the state of Alabama has a huge tie to football, but that's all true despite not having an NFL team. And so the way we look at it through, through our lens is, well, what can we do with the players who are now in the NFL who may have played in Alabama or at Auburn? And what can we do from a marketing standpoint that um, is, is, speaks to those fans, not necessarily limited to the fact that um, you know, Cam Newton played at Auburn and now he's in Carolina. Well, his appeal goes way beyond Carolina and, and frankly, way beyond what he has done and will do with the Carolina Panthers. But also, what did he do when he was at Auburn, where he is a legend and a legend for all time? Right. So one of the things that you did mention that this just reminded me of during the session, you talked about the players doing FaceTiming with people that have bought their jerseys taking a little bit of a playbook out of um, Old Spice, right, with uh, with uh, responding individually to each of the influencers. So talk a little bit about that and some of the techniques that, you know, you're helping these players use to better and more deeply connect with their fans. Yeah, so um, that's a perfect example, and it's funny you bring up Old Spice because I am rereading a book by Gary um, Vaynerchuk uh, called The Thank You Economy, and and the Old Spice, um, the Old Spice example factors heavily in in Gary's book um, as both a positive example of leveraging social media um, and a, a negative example in terms of the, the, the lack of follow through um, by the brand. And so um, what we did with the players um, was was um, work with Fanatics, our e-commerce partner, um, to be able to take um, this sales data and say, okay, we had a player sell a jersey this morning Let's do kind of this semi-spontaneous FaceTime call in the afternoon with the player himself whose jersey was bought and just really have the player say thank you to the fan for buying um, his jersey and, um, you know, have a quick two-minute, three-minute conversation. And obviously the fan is shocked to get a call from from this player that they've just bought, you know, a, a jersey from. And um, we film it and, and then, you know, we're able to post that to social media and ha- allow more than just the fan who bought the jersey to share in that moment and um but then really the 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 interesting thing is to to watch and to then maximize what that does going forward and that's something where you know in in um gary vaynerchuk's book um he talks about old spice not doing right even though they had a sales jump when they put this content out there but not actually following through in the long run and then finding out months um, uh, later that there hadn't been a lot of activity on that Twitter account um, from Old Spice. And so kind of missing on the full value there. And so we tried to avoid that with what we did with Fanatics um, by being able to then follow up with players um, weeks and months after the fact and being able to create emails that the players are signing and um, sending out and, and tweets that they're sending directly to 
um, uh, fans and, and really customers at that point, um, alerting them to new products that are available and, and just really kind of trying to continue uh, what should be a two-way uh, dialogue. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, I know having blogged and podcasted for a long time, one of the things that anytime someone wants to do a new podcast or a blog, I'm like, are you committed to doing this? Are you going to do more than three? And that's where I think brands have a hard time where they get excited, they create this campaign, and then whether it's the microsite, the Twitter handle, or whatever, they sort of let it die. And that is a less a cautionary tale, right? And it's good that you guys are really following that. I want to ask you a question that we weren't planning for, and you can tell me, shut up, and we're not going to answer it, but it's not a difficult one. Um, the NBA, this is because we're at South by Southwest, yeah. we're talking about all sorts of technology, AR, VR. So virtual reality is starting to take um, a major or play a major role in the NBA, where they're allowing people to watch games, essentially courtside. Um, I'm assuming you know a thing or two about this in the NFL. Do you guys have any plans to mimic that, or are you using you know AR, VR in interesting ways? And like I said, if you're not prepared to answer, then yeah. we can take it in a different direction. Look, I think AR and VR um, are the future. Um, I think um, it it there's such a huge percentage of fans that haven't attended a game in person for all sorts of reasons, um, distance. Um, uh, Cold time. if you're in New England. Yeah, weather, um, but but also primarily money, right? Yeah, and, not and, inexpensive. And, and and the you know the inability for um, a large portion of the population to afford to go to a game. And so when you look at AR and VR, um, you know the the possibilities to go beyond the seventy thousand seat capacity stadium. Um, but also, you know, we're all used to watching games on, um, and I think we're sitting here. Uh, March Madness has just kicked off. And or, or I guess tipped off, and um, we, you know, from a broadcast perspective, what does AR and VR add to the equation? And we're we're kind of early days um, of early days, right? So we're really, really at the beginning of this. I think the NBA has, to their credit, been very much on the forefront and cutting edge of this. And our league, you know, for better or worse, has a um, a, a less strong tradition and culture of trying things out and and you know being willing to fall a little bit flat you sometimes. sort of haven't really needed to where some of the other leagues really that's have true. needed to push the envelope that's absolutely true so so the the dynamic is different when you're the number one sport the way the NFL is um, um, currently uh, in in certainly North America and so but we're we're definitely watching those things um, very closely and then the thing that I'll add is that um, we've got 2,000 players who have the longest offseason of any of the major sports, right? We're not playing um, your New England Patriots are seemingly in the Super Bowl every single year, but even they aren't playing the rest of February all the way into August. And so what do players do in their spare time? We've got lots of players who are doing all sorts of things from interning at companies, and AR, VR companies are certainly on that list. Investing in companies, AR, VR companies are certainly on that list. But then also doing interesting content and trying out new things. So we may not touch uh, necessarily touch the crown jewels immediately as it relates to the game broadcast. There's such a limited quantity. There's only 16 games. That's the other advantage the NBA has. They're hungry because they're not the top league, but they're also, they have this insane inventory, 82 games per team, um, and, and we have 16 games, right? And we only have one game a week um, per team. And the NBA has three, four games per week per team, there's games on every single night starting right around Halloween going all the way into June. 
And so they have a lot more room to run in terms of testing things out and trying things out and picking different markets to just, you know, see how things work. Now, the luxury we have is that we can, you know, there's no reason why something would work and be appealing to fans in the NBA and then think that, well, it'll just, there's no way that'll work in the NFL. Um, and so we're, we're certainly learning from uh, what, what's going out there, uh, what's going on out there in the marketplace right now. Cool. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for doing that a little bit off the cuff. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit. This is where we do sort of our three traditional questions that, you know, I prep the guests for up front so they can think during the session. Um, the first is something that people don't know about you that you're willing to share. Um, so I have been thinking about that the whole time. Well, so I'll go with my usual one, which was that um, Barack Obama was my professor in law school. Um, so in my third year, I took a uh, constitutional law seminar at the University of Chicago um, with 20, 25 students in the class, and he was our professor for the semester. And um, politics aside, a really, really intelligent, um, smart, sincere man who, um, in the spectrum of law school professors, wasn't necessarily the most um, entertaining professor because um, the, the, the professors who were the most entertaining were the ones who had tenure and really didn't give a crap. And so they just said all sorts of outrageous things kind of under the, um, the, the cloak of hypotheticals, um, but that made us laugh. And yet um, uh, Professor Obama at the time was a sitting politician, state senator in the state of Illinois. So he didn't have the luxury of, of you know, saying whatever popped into his head and, and entertaining his students. But that really wasn't how he viewed his job. He viewed it as teaching us, and um, he definitely did that. So that may be the coolest thing that people don't know about me. Do you, I mean, would he know you or no, have you stayed no. in touch with him? Or Now, about half of that class um, went on to work on his um, U.S. Senate campaign and then um, his presidential campaign. And in fact, funny, funny enough, I did stay in touch with a lot of those people. And back in, if we rewind to 2008, I was actually getting ready to, um, I was a lawyer at a corporate law firm. Um, and I was getting ready to go into the government and work. Um, I actually was on um, and participated in some calls on the Obama transition team. Um, my, um, my boss, um, my chairman of my board right now, had worked for Eric Holder um, among his colleagues uh, in the U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office in the 90s uh, in the Department of Justice um, under Janet Reno in, in Bill Clinton's administration. Uh, his colleagues were... Um, Bob Mueller, who's been in the news, and Jim Comey, who's been in the news, and then obviously Eric Holder, who went on to be uh, the attorney general in the Obama administration. So we were both getting ready to go into government, and and so I imagine you know my life would have looked very different where where we suddenly had this opportunity at the NFL Players Association pop up. So we you know declined to go into the government and probably a little safer job than some of those others. It's funny. I still have some lawyer friends who think that we were dumb for for turning that down, and I I. You know, they're probably not going to listen to this podcast, so I think they're dumb. They are very dumb. <laughs> well, just by funny way, of, again, of connections. So we've had Brad Parscale, who is Trump's mm -hmm. digital guy and don't agree with the politics, but he was a fascinating guy. And then also I did a panel recently. With, job too. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. Um, with Teddy Goff, who was mm -hmm. uh, one of Obama's guys. So that is cool. Um, the second one I want to ask, and uh, I know you did your little homework on this, so I like to ask guests about books, you know, yeah. see these are some of the smartest people, what are they reading, what's sort of feeding their brain, so what would you like to share there? So, yeah, I've, I've had an interesting history with books, so for a long time, um, I only, like, doggedly read nonfiction, kind of business, self-improvement, productivity types of books. I'm a big magazine reader, so um, I... I uh, like People or Fortune? Well, no, no, yeah, more Fortune, Forbes, Fast Company, 
um, wired uh, types of, of magazines. Um, uh, the Economist is is uh, definitely a favorite. Um, and oddly, the 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 last page of every econ Economist issue is an obituary, and oftentimes there are people you've never heard of, and that is my favorite weekly read, hands down. Um, but on books, I've, I've kind of broadened out the last few years, and so one of the things I've surprised myself by enjoying um, tremendously are biographies. And so to answer your question, anything by Walter Isaacson, um, I have read, and anything he writes um, in the future, I will read. Um, he uh, probably is best known for writing the Steve Jobs biography, but he has an outstanding biography of Albert Einstein, I just finished um, not too long ago, Leonardo da Vinci, um, Benjamin Franklin is probably my favorite biography that, that um, Walter Isaacson has written. And then I'll throw one bonus one in, it's, is memoir-ish, um, but also a great business lesson. Um, uh, Phil Knight wrote a really, really um, uh, intimate um, memoir called Shoe Dog about his um, founding of Nike. And it's really the early days of Nike um, and really kind of that struggle, um, frankly, that he had to endure, and really not until the day they went public did he feel secure in the company's future. And it was just fascinating to see that even somebody like that, and here we are sitting in 2018, and Nike is this institution, and to to get such an intimate look in the, the founding um, and the struggles that the founder went through was, I think, really helpful um, because it's something that I think we can all relate to. Well, those are great suggestions, so thank you. Uh, I've got a library now of 100 books that I need to read from people like you and others. It is interesting, though, to that point that I think a lot of people don't realize how close to failure some of these biggest successes were. I mean, Steve Jobs, you know, clearly with Apple. Um, I do want to get to our last question, which is always my favorite, and that is you're stuck on a deserted island. Uh, you can bring one album with you and one album only, ideally not a greatest hits. What would it be and why? All right, so I'll, I'll avoid greatest hits, but I'm going to do a double album. Double albums are... Okay. I give extra <laughs> bonus points for double albums because okay. clearly that's a great way to extend the... Exactly. So um, I will go with... Um, it's actually my favorite band in high school, and oddly, I've like re-kind of engaged um, in, in Apple Music and Spotify. Uh, so it's the Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and The Infinite Sadness. Um, and it's a great... It's a double album, came out mid late 90s something like that 95 96 um, but really a a broad broad range of i mean you'll have classical music sounding songs on on uh, one part of the album and then the hardest of hard rock songs on on others and really the kind of music that if you just print out and read the lyrics you know at times just arguably you know i go out on a limb and say it's kind of like poetry so yeah no billy corgan is uh is a master and we'll give a shout out to my friend kyle flaherty who loves them it's funny because i was interviewing uh this band black pistol fire who played at our party last night great guys and we were talking about favorite albums and um i had mentioned gish because someone had yep. mentioned bad motorfinger by soundgarden and i said it was funny because i remember being in dc at georgetown which i guess you're also a uh, visiting professor or guest yep, lecturer i used to yeah yes yeah. um but while I was there, there was a record store, and this woman there, this is before I was married to my lovely wife, uh, she made a tape for me, and it was Gish on one side and Bad Motorfinger on the oh, other. Awesome. And I love all those Smashing Pumpkins, right. but that's a great album. So yeah. anyway, thank you. Um, so this is Aaron Strout, CMO W2O Group, the host of the What to Know podcast show, and I've had the luxury of spending the last 20-ish minutes with Ahmad Nassar, who is the president of the NFL Players, Inc. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thanks for having me. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. 
Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whwillgroup.com slash what to know.